some n years ago, uh, I started speaking about the twin nuclei problem, which is that when we, uh, in 1953, uh, entered the nucleus of the eukaryotic cell and extracted the three-dimensional structure of DNA, uh, we became godlike within that nucleus. And then s less than six months earlier in 1952 with the explosion, the test of IV Mike, uh, we came to know, the physicists brought sin and came to know the power of the sun in the form of thermonuclear reactions mediated by the Teller-Ulam design. And my feeling is we cannot afford to have these borders oscillate as they have always oscillated. In fact, they didn't oscillate. If you look at a time lapse, much after World War II up until the fall of the Berlin Wall because of the specter of nuclear uh, annihilation. And I will point out that I'm, I'm not supposed to say I called it, but we're insane. I mean, just the twin nuclei problem within the space of the time that I was talking about it, we're facing potential absolute cataclysms. And, you know, we're now for, we're, we're trying to figure out if we should be sending planes after sending tanks into Ukraine. We're not supposed to discuss it. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, I don't know what we're doing, but I do know that we're playing Russian roulette and we're not going to be surviving this if we keep playing this every time somebody wants to change a border in Central and Eastern Europe. Welcome, everyone, to part one of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible, featuring Eric Weinstein and Brian Keating, in a frank discussion diving deep into philosophical and existential questions of faith, belief, global conflict, anti-Semitism, the state of elite academia, geopolitical threats, including American leadership in STEM, nuclear annihilation, and so much more. These are controversial topics addressed with an intellectual rigor you're unlikely to hear anywhere else. Agree or not, if you appreciate civil dialogue and honest debate, pay it forward with a five-star rating. And please keep in touch with Professor Keating by joining his email list at briankeating.com list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a bit of space dust in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Please let us know what you think of some of the many topics covered in this episode in the form of a review, like this one from Greedy Wheels. Great podcast, great host. Brian is really great at bringing on and talking with people with opposing viewpoints. This is how science should be done. Unlike many podcast hosts, Brian actually has the background to back his talk up. He isn't just a random dude or TikTok teenager philosophizing about life. More people should pay attention to this dude. And now, from our studio at the University of California, San Diego, brace yourself. For a roller coaster of controversial topics as we go into part one of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible with Brian Keating and Eric Weinstein. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. It's approximately our 300th episode. And who better to share that with than our friend, our most frequent guest, raconteur, mathematician, dad, Eric Weinstein. How are you, my friend? Great to be with you, Brian. We were together last in person, well, earlier today with uh, Professor Daniel Green, and you can find that episode here or there or somewhere. 
uh, in an episode called uh, "What's What's Going On with Physics? What's Wrong with Physics?" We're not going to talk about physics. Now we're going to talk about the really important stuff: the clickbait, the reason everybody came here, and that's really to debrief from our last encounter in person, which was in a uh, a very d- disgusting place to spend some time in the middle of fall, and that was uh, that was Florence, Italy. I mean, that, that was horrible. I don't I don't know how we both survived Florence, Italy, but. Got through. <laughs> And it was uh, arranged in honor of uh, the magnanimous and uh, mellifluous uh, David Berlinski. You've known him for a, quite some time. I've not known him for for as long, but I've come to enjoy him and like him and and uh, regard his intellect with great respect and uh, somewhat trepidation. Hmm. But there we encountered many, many new people, at least from my perspective, and I use that to mine for guests on the Into the Impossible podcast. And three of those guests uh, have appeared so far, and that is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University. We spoke about uh, disease, which is in its third year as we're speaking, almost exactly three years to the day. It's Valentine's Day, by the way. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's great to see. I got you a gift. I got you a gift. Uh, Stuart, zoom in on this. We have our we have our producer here. This is for you, Eric, my sweet friend. It's called Foam, Sweet Foam, and it is soap from Uranus. And for Uranus. Uranus. Okay, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, He was not there. Uh, We had these esteemed professors, including Mm. Dr. J, not the basketball player, but Dr. J Bhattacharya, who's become a great friend and uh, really an intellectual hero and and, uh, an incredible intellect who stood up against the courage, uh, with courage against the forces arrayed against him, as he described at that meeting. I also had on two interesting. Christian space scientists, you know, pause scientists, uh, who have been on and scientists I, who happen to be believing Christians, who are believing Christians, one of whom, Dr. James Tour, started off life as a Jew, and he is what's known as a messianic Jew or a Jew for Jesus. And he, I would say, was one of my most controversial episodes to date. How so? Well, I received a quite a significant amount of vitriol from uh, about his appearance and how could I platform him? How could I have a um, a zealot uh, uh, and a science denier? Uh, even though this person has published over seven hundred articles and he is a name chair professor at a top research university, Rice, Rice University. Um, and uh, most of the that, crit- that's a crazy perspective. Let's just yeah, let's, that's 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 really heterodox. Uh, and a lot of the comment came from, uh, in particular, a very well-known YouTuber who's going to be on the podcast. His name is Professor Dave Farina. He is calls himself a professor. He's a, not an official professor the way that Jim Tour is or or um, you know, Luke Barnes, who was the other guest I had on, or Jay. Uh, nevertheless, he makes incredible content uh, for his channel, but he's taken a, quite a, a strong approach to dealing with the Christian space scientist that we were encountering there, including past guest Stephen C. Meyer and uh, and people uh, of, of that same stature, Discovery Institute folks that were there. And it wasn't only about that. I'm getting the idea that I don't have enough controversy in my life. <laughs> we need to have more. Um, first thing I want to ask you is uh, regarding these, these, these gentlemen. Um, when we were there, there was, you were the token uh, atheist there, I would say. You, you described yourself as an atheist. Uh, I describe myself as a practicing agnostic, which we can get into the distinction there. But these gentlemen... Two, two Jews who pray, who aren't convinced that it's two anyone up there. <laughs> and not even convinced there's two of us. Right. Um, 
<laughs> I forgot about your solipsism. But we talked about, uh, while you were there, you brought up, um, as a voice of reason, I would say, you brought up this notion that I've described in the following kind of logical progression. I, I was asked to write, you know, an encomium for Stephen C. Meyer's thousand page long book. He gave me a 10, 10 day deadline to do that. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> um, so I wasn't able to get it on the back cover, right? So, and this, uh, and, and this kind of logic that he and I discuss is often phrased by me in the following way. Uh, there, if there is a cause to the universe, if the universe came into being, there is a first cause. And that first cause then translates into a purpose, a meaning, a reason perhaps for which the universe was created. Perhaps there was a subjugation of such an entity's free will. And there's no information in the universe that doesn't trace itself back to some source. And therefore, Jesus. And the line of progression is is a short one. And you, I don't associate that with Stephen C. Meyer. He associated with. I mean, he he agreed with me that. I don't that think happens. he's a therefore Jesus guy. Well, there's a personal God, right? So there's two properties God must have, right? God must have created the universe. We're gonna have a disagreement. This is awesome. All right, this is good. This makes for good television. Uh, <laughs> the notion that you can have a universe without a cause is is sort of goes back to Saint Thomas Aquinas and and many other thinkers, oh uh, unmoved movers and so forth. But eventually that cause has to have a reason. And that reason is ultimately the genesis of man. And then their theology, Jesus is the reason uh, for the, for not only the season, but for the, uh, for the creation itself. Yeah. In other words, there has to be a personal God and we Jews practicing, and you, you observe Judaism. You're not practicing at the level I am maybe, or our mutual friend Ben Shapiro might be, but you, you still have Shabbat. You do, in the Shabbat prayers on a Friday evening, we say two two things. We say, we attest to the fact by standing up, holding a glass of wine, that God created the universe. And not only that, that's a universal, literally universal God, but also personally, he led us out of Egypt. Those are the so, two so functions. You're, you're talking about the Kiddush, where the first part before the wine um, is uh, taken from Genesis or Breshit, and then the wine is drunk and it's the separation between the first birth and the second birth of the Jewish people from yes. the escape from Mitzrayim exactly. or Egypt, the narrow place. That's right. And Places, so if you were designing a religion, <laughs> would you include physical laws or physical forces? And, and uh, would there be, no. is it necessary and sufficient to have a creation of the universe as part of your religion and a creation of a personal relationship with God? No. If you were God, how would you have orchestrated? How would you write the Torah according to Eric Weinstein? Well, I'm not quite sure. We have to figure out what it is that we're asking and discussing. I think that these are very interesting things because I think that the first issue is uh, effectively uh, should religious scientists live under a cloud of suspicion? Uh, and if their religion informs their science, what are we to make of that? Is it contaminated? Mm. And I think it's very important to recognize that there are multiple ways of being a scientist who happens to be religious. Um, and I've learned this over time. So I've been wrong on this topic and I've, in coming into contact with high, higher quality scientists motivated by religion, I've come to understand that there's a subpopulation that is very special and interesting. And it's effectively a population of people who agree to the rules of science. They're not going to cheat on the rules of science because Jesus, but they are going to use the idea of purpose and a personal relationship with God 
to give them courage to question things that are essentially unquestionable within the uh, union of scientists that will get you thrown out of the union of scientists very quickly, as to your point. So what we're talking about is we're talking about relatively self-destructive scientists focused on science who get their courage from religion and some of their bearings and their focus. Uh, so for example, um, many of these people do not believe that there's a persuasive case for random mutation as being the major engine of selection. They believe that uh, it is simply improbable, and they point to very often the Wistar Conference held at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wistar Institute, um, and they, 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 they try to say this is a live issue where the books got closed prematurely, and in fact, it's the atheists, according to them, who were led into error because they were trying to close the books desperately so as not to leave any gap large enough uh, for a god to be smuggled into the canon of science. I am persuaded that the Richard Dawkins of the world, who have contributed, in my estimation, hugely to modern evolutionary theory, are so afraid of dealing with religious colleagues that they were eager to shut the books and not give many of these people their due. And what's more, um, the concept of intelligent design is a really interesting one. Now, my brother, who uh, I think has just brilliant turns of phrase and insights into evolutionary theory, one of his, you know, Richard Dawkins, I think, wants to be remembered for the meme not, not as the uh, the the, the gif uh, that mm -hmm. that um, gets sent over Twitter, but the meme and the extended phenotype is his greatest contributions. And I think one of Brett's um, better ideas is understanding perception mediated selection. It is very clear that when you have uh, various breeds of dog, they are intelligently designed. When you produce a mule from a donkey and a horse that is not a natural animal you are producing an intelligently designed animal when you create orchid varieties. So in all of these cases, you have to admit that Darwinian theory has perception-mediated selection, uh, the display of bowerbirds, um, where they build these structures and adorn them with blue in some cases. Perception-mediated selection is a form of endogenous design which is intelligent because it is mediated through perception. Right. It's a good place to study it because the words intelligent design have been made radioactive, right? right? And so what we're arguing about is should the, should the books have been closed uh, with the neo-Darwinian synthesis or should they have been left open? And I, I have to say, I, I really think that without the religious scientists who are willing to destroy themselves and their careers, but who still do not wish their love of a benevolent God or a, a fearsome Old Testament God or, or, or a personal Jesus Christ, I believe that many of those people are responsible for prying the books open when Dawkins and company wished to close them prematurely. And I'm honestly sympathetic with the Dawkins perspective. I cannot stand what I've called Jesus smuggling, uh, where you're in some very careful argument and you know, you've set everything up and then somebody sort of says, well, I just believe that God's love pervades everything. And you're just like, oh brother, do I really have to listen to this? Um, on the other hand, 
going toe to toe with some of these religious scientists is an eye-opening experience because mm -hmm. they are highly motivated not to not, they know that they're heretics and if you think about let's say um galileo's heresy they are in some sense the heretics of today and their reputations are burned at the stake they're not they're not bruno in uh 1600 in the square mm -hmm. but I think that what we have to say is that many of these people are making points that atheists wish would go away. What is the strongest or some, give me a couple of uh, <clears throat> arguments from design that appeal intellectually. Well, uh, I, I'm particularly motivated by two systems uh, in perception mediated selection. One of which has to do with the lampacillus muscle, which uh, produces a, meaty lip that extends outside of its shell in clearly the form of a bait fish for bass in clear streams. And when a bass swims by, the muscle wiggles this little piece of meat that is outside, and it looks exactly like a fish in the stream. And the bass sometimes fall for it, sometimes see the ruse. But if they fall for it, the bass clamps down on the lip, and all of the young of the muscle, of the lampicillus muscle, um, diffuse into the gills of the bass, clamp on to get a blood meal, and are taken away by the um, bass to distribute them in the stream where the muscle doesn't have the ability to spread its young. There's no way you can tell me that that isn't an intelligently designed system, and it's the bass that is the intelligence. And the bass is specifically designing its own fooling, its own its self-deception, because dumber bass have fell for this trick before and smarter bass uh, didn't fall for it and that pushes the selective pressures in order to produce this now there's a closely related system that is not based on predation which is the bass system but is based on uh, sexual reproduction and that has to do with the ophrys system in orchids so there's this one sort of clade of orchids um, where you know i talk about this a lot darwin I asked the question one day, what did Darwin do after Origin of Species? Like, how do you follow yourself for an encore? And he wrote this book, which I couldn't believe the title, which was on the various contrivances by which British and foreign orchids are fertilized by insects. And I thought, that is the dumbest thing I can possibly imagine. But Darwin being Darwin was incredibly smart. Or orchids are incredibly speciated. And therefore, they're a great system in which to study various mechanisms. Now, if you read that, Darwin does not understand why the Ophrys orchid makes a replica of the species that pollinate it, particularly the females, with using its lowest of five petals, I believe, and producing incredible pheromones that are almost indistinguishable from the pheromones produced by a female who is receptive to mating. And you watch Darwin trying to figure out why this would be, and he can't figure out that this is actually a consequence of his own theory because the theory is too new. And it's just like one of the most beautiful vignettes and nobody talks about it. And so what I would say is in that situation, a male does, tries to copulate with the flower, not realizing that it's not a female. And if it, it's fooled twice, then the flowers don't have to give up an, expense, an energetically expensive nectar meal. And they can, they can be very cheap about it. All they have to do is to offer an ersatz sexual experience and this is called pseudocopulation. So in both of these systems, if you look at the mirror orchid, for example, it's a stunning replica with hair 
and the shininess on the back and this whole the, the whole thing you can tell what is fooling the pollinator now both of these are systems in which that which is dumber is fooling that which is smarter using the intelligence the bounded intelligence of the thing being fooled to intelligently design a trap and both of these are effectively parasites because they're stealing energy from the dupe and that energy is used to further the species in an antagonistic fashion um if i make that point and i say actually intelligent design is all through the animal kingdom it's just not what you think it's not a question of an initial creator who's deciding you know the unmoved mood or saying you're, you're an aardvark uh, you're a eucalyptus tree so endogenous intelligent design is essential to Darwinian theory within Brett's context of perception-mediated selection. And then what do you get from the uh, atheistic science community? It's like, we will have no such discussion because what they want is a very clean, bright line. You know, show me the card-carrying members of the church uh, and we will dispatch them. Mm. And my feeling is that's not how the games play. I love that you worked in sexual selection on Valentine's Day. Uh, it is. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I guess, yeah, pivoting to where the information comes into play has been my challenge. Um, it, it's not altogether more impressive to me if you invoke a deity, you know, at the last second or if you have to invoke it at the beginning of time, uh, whatever that means. But I think that there is, you know, kind of an um, almost on you know, ra, ra, d difficult to engage in a rapprochement between these two different fields. And I wonder why it is. And from my perspective, as somebody who's agnostic, which, and I do make a distinction, I, I asked this of first podcast guest on the Into the Impossible podcast was not Eric, it was Freeman Dyson. And Freeman, I'm to, honored to have been bumped. <laughs> uh, that's not what he said at the time. No, the uh, the claim that Freeman would make is that he was agnostic. And I said, Freeman, that's very interesting. You know, uh, just out of curiosity, what church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to church. Uh, okay. Uh, well, um, how would a very intelligent alien looking down at the earth and seeing you and your, you know, fellow countryman Richard Dawkins? How would this intelligent alien? distinguish between the two of you if your practices are identical. In other words, you don't go to the same church that Richard Dawkins doesn't go to. So by what means do you distinguish yourself as agnostic from just atheist and just a lazy atheist or, or just a, maybe a, I don't mean dishonest, I'm not going to besmirch him, I, sure. I loved him, but, but the point being that you're not being fully honest with you. You're really an atheist, but you don't want to say it. For whatever reason, you don't want to say it. Um, so why not come out with it? And I think the thing that distinguishes the believers that we met there that i met there about acharya luke barnes and uh to a very are they all out are they all all these episodes are out yeah no no no. out of the closet oh yeah <laughs> you mean as believers i'm telling oh, you oh yes there's absolutely. a huge stigma yeah. against being a believer in something. oh no no james tour not only has no, 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 james tour i believe yeah. but i don't know i didn't know jay's status Oh, yes. Yes. No, Jay is, Jay is, a very, we talked about it extensively in our interview and, and actually we'll pivot to that towards the end. We talk about, um, you know, the, the, the current status of COVID and the, the prospects for what we call teshuva repentance. Is it possible for the, the, the proponents of lockdowns and masking and all sorts? We should also just say that given that Jay's last name is evidently Bengali, um, he is a Christian uh, believing Yes. Uh, Academician. Very, very devout. And we, we spoke about the role the church played, not only in his life, you know, from, for a very long time, in his guiding 
principle and morality, and also in the role that he played with the COVID-19 uh, proclamation. Up. Yeah, standing up at his church and and engaging his church and, and, and fellow uh, church members to engage them to provide some of the first samples for the study that led to eventually the Great Barrington Declaration. Anyway, we're not talking about him. I really want to talk about people like uh, James Tour. So I feel like as a believer or as an agnostic, you can doubt your uh, belief at any time. Theodicy. It's a classic question. Why do good things happen to bad? By the way, which is more annoying to you? When something good happens to a bad person or when something bad happens to a good person? Um, it's not even a context. If some good thing happens to a bad person, I always hope that it might give them pause and that gives them an opportunity to course correct. Okay, fine. So theodicy is a classic thing that believers have to struggle with. And, you know, some will say, well, you know, that that's our only thing that we I'm not going to get, uh, you know, comment either way. But I asked James Tour. let me just stick to James Tour, And it's on camera. I said, look, James, uh, I have doubts. You know, like, do you ever doubt your theism? Uh, do you ever have this notion? And I found it very striking because he said, absolutely not. He said he never downs for one nanosecond. I don't believe that. I, I found it hard to believe it, but I also found it in concert with his conversion to Christianity. In Judaism, as you know, our catechism is, is the Shema, which means you are commanded to love God. And what does it mean? Do you have to be commanded to love your, your children? I don't, I don't feel like you have to be. It's natural to love your kids, right? You only command something that's unnatural, right? Don't eat pork. <laughs> it's pork's pretty delicious. I used to eat it in my, in my youth. Uh, it's pretty good. So don't eat it. It's you know, prosciutto with melon that really gets you, right? <laughs> oh, that was tough. In uh, I had to skip over the lobster langosta. Uh, but you don't command something that's easy to do. In other words, God is not lovable in Judaism. God is not considered lovable. He's actually considered fearful and awesome in a, in a quasi mixed yeah, hybrid read thing. the sequel <laughs> that's the new testament no i did read the sequel uh, uh so now tell me do you ever doubt your atheism and what do you time right okay so so no, it would be what crazy makes you doubt your, yeah so what makes you doubt oh just uh imagine just believing all the time with 100 percent confidence that the world has no purpose it's a giant uh pointless yeah, pointless exercise, sound and fury signifying nothing. That's uh, really bleak. And I don't think we're meant to be atheists. I think we're no. meant to be re religious. And I think that there's a Chomskyan pre-grammar of religion. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't honor that, uh, you're going to end up oscillating your whole life because you're going to believe in nothing. And then you're going to find out that life can't be supported so easily by believing in nothing. And then you're going to overdo it. And so rather than being a spring, uh, a weight on a spring engaging in simple harmonic oscillation between atheism and belief, I thought I'd skip the round trip and try both camping and decamping so that there's less oscillation. Mm -hmm. And that's, and, you know, I think prayer is incredibly important. And if you try to chisel on prayer by saying, I know this is not true, but I'm going to do it anyway, I don't think it's very effective. Yeah. So. You know, I go to movies that I don't believe actually happened. I don't think Star Wars is a, is a documentary, uh, although The Matrix is. And um, I think that in the same way, you have to be immersed in part uh, in religion so that it doesn't come and bite you. And, and by the way, Jim is a very special case, and I, I hope that I'm not saying anything out of turn. Jim's introduction to Christianity was that they just seemed happier. That he, he found a group of Christians who immediately put him in a good mood, made him feel wanted, loved, 
cared about. It was an experience that he hadn't had. And that's a very different issue than nanomachines uh, providing a puzzle to him that he can't solve. And so if you ask the question of why does he not doubt himself, I believe that what he came into Christianity for is different than what gives him confidence because I believe that he has a scientist's confidence. Whether he's accurate or not is a different question. Well, there, I think I, I might disagree because in the conversation that we had on, on, the, on the podcast, he was expressing it as a result of direct revelation that he had encountered Jesus Christ, uh, whether through prayer, meditation. We had different conversations, and I'll I'll leave it to Jim to sort that out. But I do know that one of his points is- No, no, it's true. uh, You want to have a bad, bad, you know, like join a religion where everyone's unhappy and miserable or or stay in the religion and from birth as he was. Judaism's a tough religion. It's a lot harder than some others. Yeah. And I believe in a certain sense- uh, Christianity softens the strictures and, and, and difficulties of Judaism, the, some of the abstractions. You make certain things very concrete. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I want to get back to the science. I think Jim's basic point is that nanomachines that we find in nature. The like, cell. Or like yeah. ATP synthase, for example, you know, inside of mitochondria. It's one of, I think, only two wheels that we know about in nature, the mm-hmm. other being flagella. Flagella. Um, or rotors, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think his point of view is you have no idea how difficult these machines are to make. That if you took the best chemists, you gave them the largest budgets, and you let them run for tens of thousands of years, there's nothing we're doing now souped up that would get you to these machines. Yeah. And that's where he gets a lot of pushback from from others in the I know. out of the gaps perspective. No, I'm just saying that I believe that some of his confidence isn't from the fact that that is true or isn't true, but he has looked at the situation and he has come to that determination. And his feeling about this is, if you want to talk about uh, minimal explanations, his belief is it's easier to deal with a conscious designer. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't share that, but I understand his perspective. So uh, pivoting to something that's still in the news. Oh, wait a second. Yeah. I want to get back to Jay Bhattacharya. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. We all benefited from Jay's devotion to Christianity because it gave him the stupid courage to do the right thing, even though we now understand that Fauci and Collins were having this little back channel about uh, swift and devastating takedowns of the reasoning of fringe epidemiologists. And, you know, my feeling is, is that we just need to get rid of the Collins and Fauci's because we can't afford them inside of the temple of science. Uh, if you're going to be reasonable and reasoned and you're going to be in charge of this, you cannot engage in anti-collegial behavior like that. It's more than just anti-collegial. I mean, it's 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 almost borderline, you know, of it's suppression. pathological. Right. right. So that actually, I did want to continue talking about God and therefore no. Tony Fauci. Sorry. Um, I joked. I said, Tony Fauci is God. You missed that. Um, Completely. So- when, when I was thinking about this episode and what we could call it, you know, I want to call it um, what happens below the von Karman line stays below the von Karman line. So the von Karman line is 100 kilometers or so. It's a fictitious surface by, over which we consider space to begin, the atmosphere to sort of end. And there are three main, actually four events that are taking place right now in the sub von Karman zone region of our atmosphere. Uh, one of those is global warming. 
Another one is uh, COVID-19, which is respiratorily uh, passed, as we know. Uh, and the other one uh, is um, uh, nuclear annihilation. Yeah. And actually, there's a fourth one, which has come to light very recently, which are uh, UFOs and unidentified flying objects operating in the uh, troposphere and uh, possibly being and being shot down all the time uh, lately as of uh, this, this recording on February 14th. Um, so there's four phenomena. These are really... You know, highlighting and and actually another thing that happened on Valentine's Day in 1990 was uh, the famous pale blue dot image mm. taken by the Voyager One spacecraft at the command of finger puppet extraordinaire somewhere over there is Carl Sagan. So he commanded it, turn around, take a picture, and he called it famously a mote of dust sur uh, suspended on a sunbeam. And how many people he waxed and and uh, poetically have fought over their fraction of that one pixel in that famous image uh, suspended on a sunbeam. I'm going to ask you, of these different phenomena, UFOs, COVID, global warming, and right. nuclear annihilation, which one is keeping you up at night the most? All of them. The most. No. I mean, look. They're equal. Well, as you know, some N years ago, uh, I started speaking about the twin nuclei problem, which is that when we... Uh, in 1953, uh, entered the nucleus of the eukaryotic cell and extracted the three-dimensional structure of DNA. Uh, we became godlike within that nucleus. And then s less than six months earlier in 1952, with the explosion, the test of IV Mike, uh, we came to know, the physicists brought sin and came to know the power of the sun in the form of thermonuclear reactions mediated by the Teller-Ulam design. And my feeling is um, it's interesting when you tell people you need to worry about the twin nuclei problem and then COVID happens coming you know, next door to a, a lab with a very active charity called the EcoHealth Alliance led by Peter Daszak, defended by, was it 66 or 69 Nobel laureates in the Lancet? I mean, just complete corruption of scientific norms. Um, so let's assume for the moment that uh, this is some sort of biological weapons convention workaround um, that may have spilled over through a wet market or something like that. And then we're in Ukraine and we're not allowed uh, to question why we are going to higher and higher levels of escalation. Now, I don't know about you, but almost all of my ancestors came from Ukraine and if you ask Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, uh, about where they came from in that region, they used to say, they usually say something like the following: Well, it's a little region that sometimes was Poland, Poland. and sometimes it was Lithuania, <laughs> and sometimes it was Ukraine, and sometimes it was Russian, Russia. and sometimes it was Belarus. We cannot afford to have these borders oscillate as they have always oscillated. In fact, they didn't oscillate. If you look at a time lapse, much after World War II up until the fall of the Berlin Wall, because of the specter of nuclear. Uh, annihilation. And I will point out that uh, Teller famously came from the, I think the Lutheran Gymnasium in Budapest with uh, Laszlo Ratz as his high school math teacher. And Szilard. And, and, uh, and with Ziller and, and von Neumann and like the, the world's greatest <laughs> secondary. High school. <laughs> high school. World's greatest high school. No, JV team. Yeah. Give it up for the Lutheran Gymnasium. <laughs> and then um, Stan Ulam came from a town which I'm now forced to call Lviv which I think I, I always grew up saying something closer to Lvov. And 
that is a Polish town in eastern, like northeastern Ukraine, where we're fighting. Ukrainians are fighting like eight seconds by hypersonic missile to the border in Poland. So, I'm I'm not supposed to say I called it, but we're insane. I mean, just the twin nuclei problem within the space of the time that I was talking about it, we're facing potential absolute cataclysms. And, you know, we're now funding more eco-health alliance. We're, 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 we're trying to figure out if we should be sending planes after sending tanks into Ukraine. We're not supposed to discuss it. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, I don't know what we're doing. But I do know that we're playing Russian roulette and we're not going to be surviving this if we keep playing this every time somebody wants to change a border in Central and Eastern Europe. And just, you know, lingering on that one one moment longer, thinking about in our community, in the Jewish community, every single Jewish community, San Diego, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., there is some tribute to the Holocaust or, you know, there's some a memorial to the Holocaust, uh, bigger ones, smaller ones, you know, Washington, D.C. and L.A. are two notable ones. And then, of course, in Israel at Yad Vashem, um, I, I was thinking, of, you know, kind of getting your take on it. We don't have we have one Hir Hiroshima and there's one Nagasaki and there's those are the two places. There's there's places. I mean, here in San Diego, we actually have a peace garden and then in Japanese. But there's nothing as visceral as uh, uh, if you've been to any of these Holocaust memorials. I've only been to Yad Vashem, actually. I should come to see Yad Vashem is powerful, but it's not. I wouldn't put it in my top five. Yeah. So uh, so that's a lacuna in my uh, Jewish journey. But but at any rate, why aren't why don't we kind of stigmatize and not, not about the morality? I think it was ultimately moral and it was sure. a good decision by Truman. But but ultimately, if we had more awareness, you've called for with with deadly seriousness, the resumption of tests. No, nobody listens. <laughs> the resumptions of above ground. Rare. Rare and controlled and, and moderate, but to to bring to a visceral sense the notion of what we're playing with literal atomic fire. Um, what about stepping back from that with the inherent difficulties of a, of a you know teller device and the resultant radioactivity that, that might accompany it, uh, would accompany it, but... What about this notion of, well, we are not doing enough in the never forget realm when it comes to nuclear annihilation or just devastation? Not, I don't think the world, the world will go on just fine. I mean, there'll be a planet here, but life. And I'm sorry, when you say that, there will be a sphere here. There will be life forms. There will be cockroaches and, and, and uh, tardigrades. <laughs> See, I know where you're going because we always have the same Hashtag tardigrades, yeah. Um, but tell me, what could, what could we do to, and then obviously my follow-up question is going to be, was there an analog for COVID? I've changed my mind about this. Uh, I called it about as cleanly as somebody can call it, and then it happened. And then we denied that it was coming out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we we're also denying that we are trying to corner a conventional enemy who also possesses unconventional weapons, which... Pardon my French, but this is just the dumbest thing I can imagine. All the same people who said that Putin would never invade Ukraine uh, are, are right here telling us exactly why this is safe, which it isn't. We are, this is the end. We're on borrowed time and we're not going to avoid this. We don't have the right leaders. You know, this just doesn't make any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because people need to be so proximate to the problem that it plays on their mind and they can't think about anything else. And the two monuments that I would recommend above all others to 
those lost in the Holocaust, or maybe three. Okay, so the Berlin Memorial, I can't even explain it. You know, it's basically these stones, these pillars, and they start off very shallow. You could have a picnic on one, and you wander into this thing, and the height just gets higher and higher and higher, and it's mind-numbing, and you lose all perspective as to where you are, and you start to realize what happens when life is devalued and degraded, and all you see is the cold, austere stones. It, it is... Who thought it, it reminds me of Bohemian Rhapsody? It made sense to Freddie Mercury to write this thing, but if you describe it, let's write a really long song that mimics several operas that makes no sense. Uh, the, I would never have greenlit this project because I'm an idiot, right? Mm -hmm. The next one is Baba Yar. Mm -hmm. uh, go to Kiev and try to keep yourself from feeling the sickness of standing near this ditch where people were just machine gunned and execute it it's a visceral thing that will cause you to lose your shit and i guess the last one that really matters to me which isn't even about jews is uh there's a an amazing sculpture of a boxing ring on an angle and it's to the sinti which is sort of a, a roma community uh boxing legend named uh, johannes trollman who was very popular in German circles as a great boxing legend. He sort of was using the Muhammad Ali technique of being highly athletic rather than just large and powerful. And he was very good looking, mm -hmm. swarthy complexion. And he fought in Germany and the Nazis took his, you know, there was a decision against him and the crowd was having none of it because they knew boxing. <laughs> so the Germans, the Nazis uh, were faced with the idea that this was not going down. And so they said, okay, we're going to change the rules to neutralize this guy's style. So he divorces his wife to save her life. I mean, I'm just, it's hard not to get emotional about this. He covers himself, his dark skin with flour to mock the Aryan preoccupation with purity. And he loses. And this guy gets sent to a camp and they, they're using him to train other people and put on exhibitions. And finally, they can't take it anymore. And I think that they just forget whether he got a hoe in the back of his head or a single bullet. But it took us until recently to reinstate his boxing championship that was taken away from him. I'd go to those three memorials. See how you do. Well, <clears throat> that was unexpected, but but very uh, but extremely meaningful. I think. But, you know, but my point is, getting, it won't last. That the, the it'll wear off. Yeah, the, the human, the, the treadmill ever, of heat on it. If you've ever had a, a near death experience for like two weeks, yeah, you're every cup mm -hmm. of water is a, mm -hmm. you know, when, when Warren Zevon was dying, I think David Letterman asked him, you know, is there any message in this? You know that you're about to die. You've had this incredible um, canon of songs that you've written and performed. Is there any lesson? And Warren Zevon said, enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> And, you know, sandwich is a funny word, and it's a deadly serious point, which is you don't appreciate just the sheer joy of being alive because you can't. There's no way to keep these lessons in mind. We're not going to explode it above. I mean, it's the smart thing to do, right. but everyone's going to say, well, you're going to contaminate the atmosphere. It's like, you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, Slava Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
post and you're, it. And you're going to post it. And, and then, then you're going to get onto the next thing and you're not going to think about it. And you're going to, and then one day, maybe have nothing to do with this in, incident, but eventually a much more deadly virus is going to come through the atmosphere. And eventually there's going to be a nuclear exchange, which you can't handle. And you're going to say, why, why didn't we listen to the, you know, it, re it reminds me of in New Orleans when Katrina hit and the levee broke. And I remember somebody on TV saying, who could possibly imagine that the levee would break? And I thought, didn't Led Zeppelin Isn't sing a song, song called <laughs> The Levee Breaks? It's what they do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I don't understand it, but there, I've come to accept that most humans cannot live with abstract knowledge. If something hasn't happened in 20 years, it's not it's not gonna happen. If it's never happened, then you never need to worry about anything that's think, a low probability, doesn't need to be thought about in the context of expected I think you're value. exactly right. And I, and I think- I've seen this in Turkey, by the way. We've had a huge yeah. devastating er earthquake, mm -hmm. and Erdogan was celebrating the fact that by relaxing building standards, he got much more housing. Mm -hmm. Right, and we're aping- Kola Kavod. Right. <laughs> And I think that's actually pertinent to, we're not going to talk much about UFOs and physics, but just UFOs and phenomena. I, I kind of feel like that's what's going on right now. I think we have these balloons, we have these uh, unmanned air, and I called it, you know, uh, bread and saucers. And it's something that you can kind of like appreciate. Like the song by uh, Miley Cyrus is going around now. It's called Flowers. And she's got an amazing voice and she has incredible characteristics. But it's a song that I could sing. About yeah. it, could become a huge Ariana Grande fan. Oh, really? Fan. That gal. She's by pipes. She has. Pipes oh, my up. God. Is she a great singer? So. I did not. Uh, I did not. I did not get that the first time. Yeah. So, but and with Miley, trust me, she's got incredible range and she's musical. She understands. Now, Eric, you know me. Um, you were playing piano earlier today. Uh, you know my only instrument is Spotify, right? That, that's about all I can play, and I don't play it well. I can sing the song "Flowers" by Miley Cyrus. It's got you know a, a one hertz you know kind of bandwidth. It's very small kind of range, or you know. Any, so how does it go? Um, it goes, uh, I can buy myself flowers, I can hold my own hand. It's written like about her ex-husband, now they just got divorced, and anyway, it's all in People magazine, which I know you okay. subscribe to with physical review t uh, letters. People, but the on newsstands near you. <laughs> I was actually in People magazine last year. Most eligible? Quoted as handsome as sexiest man, uh, no, 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 in, in, this, in this office. No, for uh, a solar phenomenon, a solar physics phenomenon. Um, Miley. Now, Miley, when she sings that song, it's it's you know like I said it's it's one millihertz fraction of her octave range right, um, but I can sing it so it's it's something I can appreciate I can replicate it I can do a TikTok of it and so forth so like it's it's easy. <laughs> Dr. Brian Keating on all platforms, but these saucers it's something people can explain are these balloons people can understand a balloon maybe they're all this maybe. Everything that's happened so far has been this. And, and maybe now we can dismiss it, or maybe we could say it's a military thing. And so, is it, it, in other words, it's sort of the same thing in, in that it's approachable, it's relatable, it's uh, you don't require advanced quantum physics to understand it. Um, first of all, what do you make of these things? And is it potentially, at its core, a giant psyop designed to distract us like we the bread know. and circus? We and don't know. Set bread and saucers. Look, the thing is, there are two basic doors into the this phenomenon. One of, is indirect evidence, and the other is direct evidence. And if you ask me, if you go by direct evidence, um, with everybody owning a camera in their pocket, uh, you have to say that this is nonsense. 
because there is no direct evidence that's high quality. There's no high quality data in the public domain. That's right. So let's just say that from the direct evidence perspective, this is nonsense. It doesn't exist. It's very silly. Okay. Now you switch your lens. You say, there seems to be an overwhelming amount of indirect evidence, like psychotically overwhelming. And I was unprepared for this until I started looking at it. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how we would, I mean, you can get rid of people who see ghosts and people who have a need for attention and you're left with people who don't want to talk about it, whose lives have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, particularly some very kind of modest and modest cognitive gift folks who seem to be able to act at the level of Brando, which I don't believe. I believe that these people have been hurt. <laughs> um, some of them with, By who? with necrosis. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, but according to Gary Nolan, he's seen damaged paths through tissue that correspond to crazy stories where the story actually has a physical trace. <laughs> um, I would say from the indirect perspective, I don't think that we're capable of faking this at this level. Even if we wanted to, even if we wanted to fly, you know, SR-71 Blackbirds and their successors and we wanted a story so in case anybody sees one, you know, the jig isn't up. Mm -hmm. So I've never seen a subject that has that profile. <laughs> Zero direct evidence, overwhelming indirect evidence. Somebody smarter than me has to call it. And in terms of probability on a Bayesian sense between getting hearings on the EcoHealth Alliance versus getting public We're access. not getting anything. You're just like, <laughs> no. Why do we have a government like that? I mean, we, I think we, a lot of we, this flows down from government. Not all, but a lot of it does. Sources and methods has become the bane of our democratic existence. I am convinced that there is an issue of privilege around many of the things we cannot resolve. You cannot have this many things shoved into sources and methods so that the public can never figure out what's going on. And classified and put into a garage. Sources somewhere. and methods. Hmm. And, and we have this, you know, we have an incredibly incredible structure for avoiding the Freedom of Information Act where we have private companies and the private companies are entrusted with secrets that you can't afford to hold in government. So in the same way that, you know, a rich person will set up an irrevocable trust and say, what assets? I don't have the assets. Penetrate this. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and the answer is the person doesn't have the assets. A container has the assets and that somebody is in control of the t container, directing the container to make loans, which are, you know, taxed under different structures mm -hmm. and, uh, so the person is and limited liability for them. living a, an incredible lavish lifestyle with no assets. With no assets. And so my feeling is, is that the government has figured out the FOIA issue, which is like, what information? We don't have any information. But it seems to me if, you know, if there were hyper intelligent aliens or some huge, um, you know, kind of malevolent entity on earth that they couldn't find a better way to destroy earth than, than sort of undermining our faith in science. And I feel no, like wait, wait we're doing that ourselves. No, no, okay. The cowards in science are doing that. And in particular, you know, a short time ago, uh, I was against public health. And people thought, like, how can you get... What, what is that? What, explain what you mean, public health. Not just funding for, you know, single no, pay? No, uh, we have a, a culture of non-scientific behavior that involves manipulating massive numbers of people um, because both war and pandemic are two places where you cannot make a libertarian argument. You 
can't say, well, whoever wants to go can go. Uh, you know, good luck with that. Then you, that's going to be a self-extinguishing argument. So there is a sort of sacred obligation when invoking public health, saying you all have to do the following thing. Right. And Safety unfortunately, this, this appeals to people who have who are willing to forego income for the privilege of telling other people how to live their lives. So it selects for the wrong element. Ideally, what you would want is people who are loath to tell other people how to live their lives, who only invoke this when it is absolutely necessary. But good luck convincing uh, people who are you know two clicks away from pure libertarianism to go into this public health field. So we absolutely need public health, but we can't afford. Fauci style, Collins style public health. And, you know, what that is, and, and Dajik's, you know, and, and it's the manipulation of people invoking science to tell people to do things that you claim are in the best interest of the social welfare function of your, of your nation. It has destroyed our credibility because people do not distinguish between science and public health. Like medicine and public right, health. physicians and mm -hmm. okay, so it's time to recognize that we need a divorce. We've been separated for a long time, and we forgot to cancel the the credit card. And public health has been running around charging everything to the Amex uh, that belongs to science, and now we have this huge bill. It's like, well, I, what about science? What about all those Nobel Prize winners? Like, you know what? You're absolutely right. We. we Public health needs to pay for itself out of its own budget, its own credibility budget, and needs to leave science alone. And we need to cut Tony Fauci and Francis Collins loose. And, you know, Jay obviously had, you know, utmost respect for the scientific accomplishments of Collins. And he even said he studied from a textbook written by Fauci back in the 80s when he was a med student. Wait, wait a second. Jay says, if I understand him correctly... I worked for 35 years in the belly of the beast, having no idea how a university actually operates. That's a much more important statement in my estimation. The sure. key point is, he, first of all, he's not only a physician, he's also an economist. Right. MD, PhD, and, right. mm -hmm. and Stanford for both. Right. He, he, he lived his entire life in Stanford not realizing that there's a secret book that you pull out in a panic room where the bookcase swings open it's like here's how the actual stuff goes down and this is what i discovered at harvard and it's shocking because you don't realize the way power and science interact in these institutions Thanks for listening to part one of this existential episode of Into the Impossible. Check out some other episodes with Eric Weinstein, one of our most popular and always thought-provoking guests. Return on Friday for part two for revelations regarding the crisis in academia and provocative thoughts on geopolitics. Keep in touch by signing up for Professor Keating's email list at briankeating.com list and if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a particle from the belly of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Remember, always be curious.